Thank you, Brother Goma, and to our musicians. <clears throat> Hope you've been blessed by the service so far this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. we'll read from verses 13 to 18 this morning Jeremiah 17 verse 13 <clears throat> O Lord the hope of Israel all that forsake thee shall be ashamed and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters heal me O Lord and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hastened from being a pastor to follow thee, neither have I desired the woeful day. Thou knowest that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Be not a terror unto me. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. Let them be confounded that persecute me, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we can look into your word and be fed from it. We pray that our hearts would be open to your truth this morning, that it would change us from the inside that your spirit would teach us, Father, what you would have us to know and give us the grace to live it. We thank you once again for this blessed time we have together and I pray that you would use me to be a blessing to my brethren here now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, so this is the uh, seventh and final sermon in this series on the heart. And we've looked at the heart uh, from a number of different aspects and, and the Bible gives a number of different metaphors and examples of analogies about what the heart of man is like. And we've looked at that from the point of view of a garden that God had planted in Eden and how it became corrupted and how God um, had, had separated and we had lost that contact with God. And that's a picture of the heart. Uh, when you look at the, um, the sermon of the sower and the seed being the word of God, it's the type of soil the seed actually uh, hits that determines whether the seed is actually going to bear fruit. And that is a picture of the heart. We've looked at the heart in terms of the temple and how the Bible says that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And so we looked at the temple and the way it was constructed and what was, what was in it. Uh, and as a picture of the heart and the preparation that went in for it, and we looked at preparation being a very important part of actually on a daily basis, receiving from the Lord those things that he would have for us. And also we looked at the priesthood. So not just the preparation of the temple when they were looking to build it, but also from the point of view of serving and what it means to serve. So we've looked at the priest and the role of a priest and how that reflects on how we are called to serve God from our hearts and in our hearts and today we're looking at or we've been looking at the last two weeks 
on this passage in Jeremiah which speaks of the judgment of God upon his people whose hearts had turned away from him and their hearts had become darkened and sinful and they had rejected him and so he was, his judgment was falling upon them. But in all of this, what I'm hoping that you understood and what I'm hoping that we would all understand is that the greatest enemy we have and the picture of you know the David and Goliath story that actually permeates the Bible is not out there. The greatest enemy we have is not outside of us. It's not even the devil. He's not, he's not our greatest enemy. The greatest enemy we have is not the governments or not the people who are atheists or not anyone else who is anti-Christian. That's not our greatest enemy. The greatest enemy we have is inside. That's the greatest enemy we have. And people go through their whole lives not realizing where the greatest enemy is and so they allow him to conquer them and they're in subjugation for most of their lives. And last week we looked at verses 9 to 10 of, uh, of Jeremiah and that they, we learned two very important truths and one very important question. The truth number one that we, that we looked at was that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The question that came from that, if that's the truth, is well then who can know it if it's so deceptive and so evil? Who can actually understand it and explain it to us? And the answer we had from that, the tr second truth that we obtained, was that I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So it's the Lord that can reveal to us the truths of our own hearts. It's the Lord who can equip us to deal with our hearts. Just as David was able to bring down a giant of a man, of a warrior, with a few stones, God has given us all the tools that we need to defeat the enemy that's inside, which is our flesh, which is our old nature, who is always going to seek to draw us back away from God into the darkness that we were in before. Jeremiah, who was a prophet to his own people, a man who was called to warn his people about their impending judgment, had been now forsaken by his own people. They refused to listen to him. Not only did they refuse to listen to him, they ridiculed him. They rejected his warnings. And that's because their hearts had turned from the Lord had, and had become very dark with sin and with self. In today's passage, we look at Jeremiah's prayer. So verses 13 to 18 is essentially a prayer of Jeremiah. It's not direct words from God. It's actually Jeremiah's words to God. It's a prayer. And in that prayer, we find a formula that will not only help us to discover what's in our hearts, but also how to change them. And before we, uh, we continue, I want us to understand, first of all, that one of the most important things you can do if you want to conquer the, the flesh and to defeat it is prayer is essential. Prayer is absolutely essential. I mean, we, we just promoted now uh, prayer before church. And we started this ministry only a few months ago. I want to thank Brother Praveen, who's been faithfully hitting that up. But how many of us are actually praying before church? How many of us realize the importance of prayer before 
we gather together in this way, before the word of God is preached, before we worship together as his people. Prayer is essential. King David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. David realised who his greatest enemy was. Prayer, really, the way we pray, more than anything else, reveals what type of heart we actually have. What you pray for, how often you pray, how you pray, and how I pray, reveals a lot about what we really think is important. Because Matthew 12, 34 teaches us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Ever been in a situation where you are busting to say something? Where your heart is so full, you have to say something? Well, that's really the case all the time. Because everything we say, because you have to put effort into speak, don't you? And oftentimes when you speak, you know, what you say may not be taken the right way. So we take a risk every time we talk. But when we speak, when we say things, we are putting effort into it, but it's what's coming from whatever we have in here. And Jesus tells us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sometimes we say things that come from our heart that are very hurtful, that aren't right, that are coming from the wrong place. But how we pray says a great deal about what we think is important and how we pray in other words whether you pray for something earnestly and fervently which is how the bible tells us to pray tells us tells us how important we think that thing is if i pray if i pray at night at home and i have no passion in that prayer and i rattle off a list of things lord please give me a b c d e f and g and thank you very much for being good to me. If there's no passion in that prayer, if there's no fervency, if we're not praying earnestly from the heart, then what it, it doesn't say anything about God. It says everything about us because it tells us that we don't think it's that important. Either we don't believe really that that prayer was going to do anything or we don't think that he really wants to hear from us. You know, there was a lot of fervent prayer in the funeral for Skylar this past week suppose when a two-year-old child is uh goes in such tragic circumstances and you see parents that are completely distraught and broken-hearted but then you also have people there who are unsaved and and people there who are struggling to understand you know what's going on there was a great deal of fervent prayer why because people thought it was important and yet, how often do we fervently pray for things? If we, if we were to measure ourselves by how much we pray and how fervently we pray, I wonder how many things are really important to us. You know, David realised how deceptive his heart actually was. So he prayed earnestly. And he said, God, please show me what I've got. Show me what's inside because I can't deal with this. I need to know what's there in front of me because if I can't see the enemy, if I don't know the enemy's there, how can I possibly deal with that enemy? So he asked God to reveal what's within his heart. David understood that only when you first understand what you have in front of you, when you realize what's there, 
Will you then seek the grace to overcome it? Will you then realise that to conquer that Goliath, you need to understand who it is you're standing in front of? No one can improve anything in their life unless they are first willing to admit that there's a deficit there, that there's something wrong. You will never, ever improve any area of your life unless you realise the weakness or a sin or something. A person cannot overcome sin unless they're first willing to admit the sin. Without admission, you cannot get repentance. And without repentance, there is no progress. There is no moving forward. Repentance is not something, and sometimes people think, oh, I repented when I got saved. I repented of my sins and I, you know, and I turned to the Lord to save me. And they think, oh, that's it. The repentance job is done. The repentance job was not done when we were first saved. The repentance just started when we were first saved. Because that's the first time we realized how sinful we were. But through all of our lives, God is showing us more and more about what's actually there. You see, the first time we got saved is the first time we realized that there was no hope without God. And so we repented of our sin. And yes, God cleansed us of our sin. But for some reason, he didn't take away our flesh. He didn't take away the earthly desires that we still had. They were still lurking there. And all of a sudden, we entered into what the Bible calls a fight. And unless you realize who your enemy is, you won't be fighting. And there was no chance you're going to be winning. So repentance is not something you just do with salvation, but is required of us each and every day. What's disappointing about many, or much of Christendom and much many Christians is that despite their faith in God, repentance is not something they actually understand. They put repentance behind them. And unfortunately, too many people living willing ignorance of what they have inside, focusing on all the problems out there. As if they've been sorted out, the problem's never theirs. The sin is never mine. Jesus cleansed me of all my sin. Now it's everyone else has got a problem. That's no, not. It's not. Because God, who's begun a good work in us, will continue it until the day of redemption. Don't live in willing ignorance. Ask God to reveal those weaknesses, those sinful tendencies, those areas in your life where you don't take seriously enough his things. Because that's sin, believe it or not. The Bible says that everything not done in faith is a sin. Sometimes we go about doing things which are not by faith, but are led by our flesh. And it takes effort. You know, some people are more happy just to live with whatever sin they've got and not have to deal with it because to deal with sin can take a great deal of effort. It takes a whole lot of, uh, of effort to deal with sin. And maybe they don't want to confess it because in confessing it or admitting it, they'll have to actually put all the effort in to fight this thing. And sometimes people's heart isn't in the fight. But everything in this world 
decays without effort. Have you noticed that? There is nothing that you leave that will not decay over time. You can buy the best car and leave it outside for a few years and see what state it's going to be in after two years. Will it get shinier and newer? No. Everything decays. Everything in life decays unless you put effort into it. And our effort reveals what we think is important because you and I will put the most effort into the things that we think are the most important. And that's true of prayer. So please put prayer as your top priority because that will reveal what type of relationship you have with God and how important you think he is to you. Let's listen to Jeremiah's prayer for himself. And you'll get not only a glimpse of what we can learn about how, to, how our hearts are, but also get a glimpse of Jeremiah's passion and his fervency. The situation of his people was dire. Judgment was about to befall them. They had forsaken the Lord in their hearts. But in all this, in all the rejection that he, that, he, that he received, all the persecution that he was going through, even though he'd been ostracized by his own people, listen to the faith and the trust that he has in his Savior. And in verse 13, he says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. God was the hope of Israel. God had done so many things for them, but they had forsaken him. He was no longer their hope. And they had, he, as he says here, and I, when I first read this verse, I thought, what's he talking about? He's saying, you know, the hope of Israel, they that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me. Notice the word me. I thought all of a sudden he's talking about himself. Yeah, they that departed from him. When he started preaching and telling them, guys, we've got a problem here. We're going to be judged for our sin. You know what they did? They took off. They didn't want to hear it. And he was pleading with them to return back to the fountains of living waters because they were dead and dying. So we learn from this particular first verse, it's very important for us to have hope. So if you want to have a heart that's for the Lord, put your hope in Him. Hope in Him, put your, which is very akin, which is akin to trusting Him. Because if I trust God, then I will hope in His promises. I will look forward to what He has for me tomorrow. And if I can trust God with my tomorrow, I can trust God with my today, and I can have every confidence that whatever will be, He will never let me down because He's trustworthy. So, lesson number two, find your hope in the Lord. Hope in Him. Because He was the hope and is the hope of Israel still. So you might ask, well, how can I trust in God? I mean, what does that mean? Do I, how do I have my hope in God? Well, the day we, we put our trust in Jesus to save us from our sin is a good indication of that. And as I said, see salvation as complete from God's end, but beginning from our end. It's a, it's a thing that God has begun in us, that he continues in us, and he wants us to continue to grow. It's trusting in Jesus more and more. 
in our lives. You know why? Because just as David prayed, God, search my heart and know what's in me and let me know what's in my heart. You know, you know what Jesus knew? Jesus knew the hearts of men. It says in Matthew 9, 4, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? So this same Jesus, who is our saviour, knows our hearts as God knows the hearts. But listen to Jesus' words. Go to John chapter 14, verse 1 with me. Because he knew the hearts of his own disciples. And he knew that just like Jeremiah and the challenges and the judgment that was coming, Jesus was telling his disciples in John 14, guys, there's going to come some pretty difficult times in the next few days. But I want you to have hope. And I want you to trust. Have a listen. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. He was saying that despite he's about to be um, betrayed and, and brought to the, to the, put in the hands of, um, of the Romans and about to be crucified and rejected by everyone, he was saying, guys, don't let your heart be troubled here. Be ready for it. You believe in God? You trust God? Then trust me. Because despite what you're going to go through, despite what you're going to endure, trust me. I've got everything under control. They were not to allow their hearts to run away with anxiety and with fear and to a place of despair. And he said to them, in essence, don't lose hope because I am your hope. You may see me on a cross dying and in pain, but trust me. I've got things under control. I know what's coming. They would, they would have believed in him the same way they believed in God. Now, either that is a completely blasphemous statement, because if any other man would ever come to you and say, believe in me the same way you believe in God, that's blasphemy, unless that person is God himself. And this is what's taught throughout the Bible about our Saviour, that Jesus was God in the flesh. So trust Jesus with your heart. Trust him with your heart and trust your heart to him. When you trust your heart to your Saviour, remember that you are trusting in his heart for you. you know, one of the reasons that people don't come to God and they reject God and don't want to be saved, is they don't trust his heart. What's his intentions for me? What does he really want from me? It's part of the reasons that we don't trust each other. You don't know what's in the other person's heart. So there's always suspicion about other people because their hearts are deceptive. And so you think, oh, that person might be lying to me because they may be telling me one thing, but they may be intending something else. But this is the thing about our Saviour. His heart is open and bare to us. And you can trust his heart for you. And when, G when people who had leprosy and were lame and blind, and you know, they, they, they turned to him, they trusted his intention for them. If your heart is his and you trust his heart for you, 
One thing I'll guarantee you today, your heart will never be broken. Never. And so Jeremiah knows this. And in verse 14, he says, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. You know, when Jesus healed someone, unlike today, when they have these uh, healing things, uh, he healed perfectly. The healing was complete. It wasn't partial. It didn't take years to, to complete. It was complete and perfect. If someone had leprosy, there weren't any spots left over. When Jesus healed, he always healed perfectly. When he saves, he saves perfectly. He doesn't leave someone half saved. He doesn't do three quarters of the job. doesn't do 90% of the job. When he saves someone, he saves them perfectly. Therefore, as Jeremiah says, he should be our praise. Our praise. And Jeremiah's faith comes out in this prayer. And he was sure if God healed him, he'd be healed. And if he was saved by God, which is he's saying, when the judgment comes down, Lord, I'm trusting that you're going to save me because I've been faithful to you. I'm, tr I'm putting all my trust in you. The road to having a heart, and this is what this, this, these sermons are about, the road to having a heart that is more and more open and known by us and free from sin and free from deception and being filled with the Spirit of God and having a passion for God must come with faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it must come by faith. Jeremiah had faith. God, if you're going to save me, I'm going to be saved for sure. If you heal me, I'm going to be healed for sure. Then we should have the same faith. Believe that God is for you. Believe what he can do in you. Because I, I sense that sometimes people who go through the fight year after year give up hope that God can actually change them. But David prayed in Psalm 51.10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit in me. Who else can do that other than God? Only he can do that. Only he can create a clean heart within you. Just like prayer reveals what's really going on, what we really think is important, so praise reveals whether you're really grateful for what you have. Think about that for a moment. If you never praise God, if you never lift him up, if you never thank him, which is what praise is, do you really appreciate what you have? Have you really understood what you have been saved from? Have you really understood what you've been given? Do you understand what eternal life actually means? Because if you never praise God, and I'm talking this personally for each and every one of us, if you never praise God in your own time and only do it when you come here in this place, which is easy to do because everyone's doing it around you, if you never do it on your own, really, what do you value in your life? Do you really understand what you have? So praise should be natural to us. Praise should be who, who we are as people. We should be praising God for the moment we take our first, that first breath when we wake up in the morning to the time we, get, we, get, we go to bed at night. Because we appreciate what we have. You know the, 
the thing about appreciation and gratefulness is that the most unhappy people in this world aren't grateful people. The people with the biggest problems in this world don't appreciate what they actually have. They're always looking at what they don't have. And that's only because they're looking at other people. Instead of understanding what they have, they become sinful. And that's the bottom line. Because if you say this morning that you're saved, and that doesn't mean anything to you, and doesn't reflect in your praise, then you're, you're falling into sinfulness and selfishness. Enter the fight each day, because it is a fight, knowing that God has saved you, knowing that God has healed you and can heal whatever else you may have, whether it's physical or spiritual. Pray earnestly, praise fervently and often, and be thankful. And so Jeremiah 17, 15 then says, Behold, and he's now he, his attention turns to the other people. He says, Behold, Lord, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. That's mocking, by the way. They weren't really requesting it. The people hearing Jeremiah's cries and Jeremiah's preaching mocked him and taunted him, demanding and say, Oh, give us God's word now. Come on. Give us God's word. Let it come now. Tell us what God's got to say. The same evil happens today. The same evil and mocking spirit that was present in Jeremiah's day and people around him making fun of him is the same thing today. But it was also the same when they crucified Jesus. Turn back with Mark chapter 15 verse 29 with me. This is not new. This is what man has been from the beginning. After the fall. What he doesn't understand, what he doesn't appreciate, he mocks. And so here we have Jesus dying on a cross. He had been beaten, whipped. He had a crown of thorns upon his head. He had a sign above his head, in a, which was a mocking sign, which is the king of the Jews, to anyone that would read it in different languages so that made sure that everyone who walked by would have a good laugh at him. And it says in Mark, now mind you, while he's there suffering and dying for the sins of the world, for those people that he's got in front of him, it says in verse 29, and they that passed by railed on him wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking. Said among themselves the scribes, saved others, himself he can't save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. Do you see the same unbelieving and scornful spirit that was happening in Jeremiah's day for those who were saying, come on, give us the word of God, come on. 
And then we have the Savior of the world on the cross, and they're saying, come on, come down off the cross. Come on. You're the king. Save yourself. Now turn to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3 with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we know full well that nothing's changed, that men are still the same. In verse 2 of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that ye be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, the word of God, and of the commandments of us, the apostles, of the Lord and Saviour. That's the word of God. In verse 3 he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? But since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. The world in general may scoff at the word of God and it's becoming more and more blatant as the years go on. There's a big uh, issue that's happening at the moment uh, in it might be Denmark or Sweden. So one of their politicians burnt a Quran in the fire and uh, Turkey has sent a, an official uh, uh, condemnation that someone will dare to burn a Quran in a fire because it's blasphemous and that thing is so precious to the, uh, to the Muslims. And yet, we live in a culture that mocks Jesus, that uses his word as a, as, a, as a swear word every second time, that makes fun of what the Bible teaches. We are surrounded by this each and every day. I wonder... The word of God is essential. It's the word of God can help us to understand what's going on in our hearts. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner, this is the word of God, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God, if read with the, with the right intent, can be a wonderful tool that separates and reveals uh, our real intentions, the real thoughts that we have that are going on. But there are some things that we don't like revealed. There are some things deep down we know are there, but we'd rather they sort of stay in the corner. You know, when, when Miria calls me and says, Frank, there's a spider up here behind the couch. Well, sometimes I don't want to necessarily have to go and deal with that spider, do I? <laughs> got to go up the stairs, got to check behind the couch. What am I going to do with it? How am I going to deal with it? But sin is much worse than a spider lurking behind a couch. Sin is more like a cancer. Okay? And to fix something broken inside of someone or to remove a cancer means they have to cut to get to it don't they and cutting to get to a cancer is always a painful event 
But consider this for a moment. Would you be happy knowing that there was a, a tumor growing inside you that could be removed? But you say, no, just leave it there. Knowing it's growing and infesting and affecting other things in your life. Well, that's what sin is like. When you consider sin lurking in your heart, consider it a cancer of the soul. And sin always leads to death because it infects other things. Like cancer grows and starts to wreck other organs in your body. Sin does the same. It affects other things that we do. And if we don't deal with it, it starts to affect the way we think and the things that we do. And it needs to be dealt with. And the word of God, Paul says here, is like a, like a, a sword. It's like a scalpel that cuts and divides and then reveals what's going on in there. And the question is going to be whether I want to go through the pain of actually having my sin revealed and having it removed. Because the word of God won't just reveal what's there, it will help you to remove it as well. But turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 1. John 15, verse 1. Because the word of God can cleanse us of our sin. The word of God can take that weakness and those faults that we have and help us to deal with them. Now pay very close attention to this passage in John 15, 1 to 4 where Jesus is speaking to them, to his disciples, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. So he's the farmer. He's the guy who actually does the pruning, right? Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it. Which means cuts it. He cuts all the bad bits off, right? Um that it may bring forth more fruit. Now look at verse 3. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. So this morning, if you're saved, if you've received Christ as your saviour, then the Bible says that you have already begun to bear fruit. You see, the first fruit that a person produces is the fruit of salvation. It's their response to the gospel. You didn't do anything. All you did was say, okay, thank you. And all of a sudden, a fruit was created. And it's a fruit that brings, it will bring God glory forever. But now the question is, what are the fruits am I going to bear? What are the fruits am I going to produce? And the the Bible guarantees you this morning that if you're saved and you have borne the fruit of salvation, that you will bear more fruit. Because notice here it says, and every branch in me that beareth fruit, forget about the one that doesn't bear fruit, they're not even saved, okay? Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. That branch will never be cut off. That branch will only ever produce more and more fruit because it's being tended to. It's being cared for by God himself. So if you're saved this morning, you cannot lose your salvation. And God's plan is for you to produce more fruit in your life. Now, Jesus says to his disciples, you're clean because of the words I've spoken to you. And that's the effect of the word of God. It can have, when it's received, it can cleanse us. It can change our thinking, clean us. 
from the inside. But your ability to bear fruit will be directly related to your readiness to receive the word of God. You can hear the word of God 24-7, but if you don't receive it in your heart, it won't change anything. So I want to share with you four principles on how to get the most of the word of God and how you can use it to change your heart. Step number one, read it and read it often. Read it and read it often. Understand it and then believe it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18. So step number one is read it and read it often. Deuteronomy 11, 18 says, Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates. What's God saying here? Why did he want them to put the word of God all over the place? To get, stick it right here in front of their eyes, to wrap it around their hands, to have it on their, on their uh, houses, to share it with their, with their children. Why? Because he knows that if it's in your heart, it will produce fruit. Step number one, read the word of God and read it often. Fill your hearts up with it. We just sang a beautiful hymn before we had the sermon. Thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Fill up your heart with the words of God. Keep it in front of you always. Teach it to others. That's the best way to learn something. Yeah? It tells him to tells them to teach it to their children because in teaching something, you're going to make sure that you lock it in. So teach it, read it, learn it. Principle two Seek to understand it. As I said, you can memorize the whole Bible. If you don't understand it, it's a pointless exercise. It's not a magical incantation book, okay? It's not a book of spells. It doesn't work like that. It works by entering in your mind and then dropping into your heart. The reason the devil takes away the word of God while a person is preaching and he's trying to distract you to do something else or to, or to think of something else is because he doesn't want you to understand, first of all. He knows if he, if he can get you to stop understanding what I'm talking about, there's no chance it's going to come into your heart because it hasn't, even, it hasn't even gone through the front gates. So remember, how do, well, how, do you, how do you understand the word of God more then? Okay, well, turn to Psalm chapter 1 with me because there are... Two very important ways you can understand the Word of God, and that's always through the Holy Spirit because He's the author of the Word of God and the teacher. So if you're listening to Him, you can do that. But sometimes our lives are way too busy. Our lives are always, we're running from one thing to another. We're chasing, I don't know how many rainbows in our lives and how many things and responsibilities we have, and we don't get time to stop. You know one beautiful thing about the camps which have just happened? It's sometimes kids... We run them off their feet too. Between school and responsibilities and everything else, they don't stop. And between that and playtime, whatever, 
But camp, camp's a beautiful time because that whole time is then separated from all the other distractions and then you see children saved, which is an unbelievably wonderful news. Congratulations, by the way. And the reason is they get a chance to stop and think. And so Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. What? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Meditation is not a bad word, not an evil word. Don't let someone else hijack that word to mean something else. Meditation in the Bible is essential for us. And the Bible says that the, a man who will not go after the accounts of the ungodly is the person that meditates on God's word day and night. What does it mean to meditate? It means you think about it. You pray about it. You ask God to reveal it to you. You chew it over. How many times have we chewed over the word of God? When you've read a passage. You know, Bible reading is a fantastic time in the morning and in the evening and whenever you get your chance. But if you just read it, and then immediately just go off and, and, and then put it to the side, you've done it injustice. You haven't digested it. None of us, I think, swallow our food whole. There might be some here that, uh, that just go straight down the gullet. But we tend to chew our food, and then you need time to digest the food. Give yourself time to digest. Think about it. Think about what it means for you. Say, ask, Lord, ask the Lord, what does it mean for me, Lord? What are you trying to say to me? So step number one, read it and read it often. Step number two, seek to understand it through prayer and meditation. Principle three, keep it in your heart. Put it there, which means you not only believe it, but you treasure it. The Lord has told us to keep his words in our hearts. Listen to these, these, these verses. John 14, 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said unto them, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him and will come unto him and make our abode with him. John 14, 24. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. What are we doing with Jesus' words? Are they the treasure that's stored in your heart? That's what they should be. They should be loved and treasured and valued so much that you want more of them, but you want to keep them everywhere you go. That's the desire that we should have for the word of God. Keep the word of God. Store it up in your heart that you might not sin against him. Treasure it. And you won't keep it in your heart unless you treasure it and value it. Because you won't. That's the way it works. And finally, principle four, do your utmost to apply it. Use it. Do what it's, it's supposed to be, therefore. Let it change your thinking, your life, your choices. Let it guide the direction you're going in your life. James tells us in James 1.22, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. 
for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he is or was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Do it. Don't just put it to the side and just let it ferment. Do something with it. Use it. And you will be blessed in your ways. And so going back to Jeremiah verse 16, Je- Jeremiah seventeen sixteen now, which is exactly what Jeremiah then said. He says in verse 16, As for me, I have not hastened from being a pastor to follow thee. Neither have I desired the woeful day. Thou knowest that which came out of my lips was right before thee. The shepherd of Israel. He didn't stop from his job. He'd been called to that. He did his best to fulfill his calling. And he spoke whatever was true, even though they rejected it. But he said, Lord, I I haven't wanted this woeful day to come upon them. It's not me who's wanted them to go through this punishment. I'm sim- you know, I'm simply, I've simply told them what you told me to tell them. It's not like, it's not like I, I, you know, I, I wanted to tell them this thing so I can say, you know, look at you, ha, 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 I told you so. Recognise, we should reckon all, recognise our responsibilities to the Lord who called us not just to salvation, but to serve him faithfully after we are saved. The unsaved can't serve God. Is that correct? There's no chance. They cannot serve God. They don't know God. They, don't, they, they can't appreciate God. They don't, they don't worship God. Okay, so here we are at a Faulkner and all the other places that you've come from. There aren't many. And if we don't serve God, who is? Understand your responsibility. That service is unique for every one of us. It's different for me and it's different for you. What he has called me to do is not the same what he's called you to do. But every one of us is not just unique, but your work is never less important than anyone else's. You are as important to God as anyone else don't ever think because I stand behind this pulpit with a tie and a, and a jacket and now these glasses that somehow I'm more important than you the Bible says that I'm your servant that's what I am but the question is and the question you have to answer for yourself is God what do you want me to do because your job is no less important And if you fail for your work, if you fail to recognise where God wants you to go and what he wants you to do, it's a life wasted. And then you'll have to live with that for all of eternity. Do you really want that? Jeremiah was cut off from his own people. He was rejected, despised, mocked by his own people, but didn't stop him from doing his job. He said what he had to say. And guess what? We are like the Jeremiahs of our day. 
Sometimes the things that we say are going to cut and they're not going to be nice for people. But God simply tells us to speak the truth in love. Not in pride, not in anger, but in love. So have the same heart as Jeremiah. Put God first. Be willing to follow him faithfully in wherever he leads you. And where he leads you may be difficult, but, but faithfully walk. And he says in verse 17, Be not a terror unto me. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. He knew that judgment was coming. He knew the Babylonian army, God was preparing it to take them away. But despite the coming judgment, Jeremiah was trusting that God would show him mercy in that day. His hope was in the Lord. His hope was that God would not forget him in the midst of all the thousands of Israel that had rejected God. And that's our hope too. That we have trusted in Jesus Christ our Saviour and that when the judgment of the Lord comes upon this world, that the blood of that lamb that covers the doorposts of our heart means that the spirit or the angel of death will pass over. That's the confidence we have in the blood of Jesus. Judgment will come, but we will be spared. And so he says, and finally in verse 18, let them be confounded that persecute me. But let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed. But let not me be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. Now he's speaking about the ones that were persecuting him. Not everyone was persecuting him, but there were those who had made a point of attacking him and trying to discredit him and trying to get rid of him. And Jeremiah says, let them be confounded, which means perplexed or confused. Let them be let them be dismayed. In other words, completely uh, uh, shocked at what comes up. He was trusting that God will fulfill his word. And he would do to them what they were doing to his people because they were ultimately leading his people astray. While Jeremiah was preaching, they were going around telling people he's lying. He's talking nonsense. Don't believe him. So he's praying for them to be judged for what they were doing. And they would be.